Uh-huh. Cool. Um, bless you all. Good to see you. Um, I know a lot of us are away. Um, just a couple, Warren and Wendy, are in Budapest. So pray for Warren and Wendy. Um, Gabby is on her way to New York. Um, uh, pray for Gabby and with a friend of hers and uh, certainly uh, quite a few others of us. That grammar was terrible, I know, uh, are out and about and travelling. So be mindful as you look around and see who's not here and, uh, and just uh, remember them before the Lord. And if you're a visitor this morning, I know a few of you are here this morning, you're certainly, as Sean said, most welcome. And uh, we, we pray and hope that you'll be blessed and encouraged as we give ourselves to God's word this morning. So if you're with us, uh, open your Bibles. Let's go to Romans chapter 1. Um, again, visitors, we've been in the, cha- in the book of Romans for a few weeks now. Um, some lights. Would you mind someone hitting the switch there for me? Um, we've been making our way through the first chapter and we've been there for, I don't know, some time. Um, I'm doing something a little different this morning. I, I gave you warning last week of what we're doing, but let me just really quickly, the previous two weeks that we've been in Romans, we saw how Paul was unfolding what we are calling really and what we see evident within society today, this downward spiral that humanity indeed has been moving towards unbelief and nobody can challenge the reality of that in the world today. Isn't that right? You know, it's moving towards unbelief and the true and the living God. And he began by saying, if you just saying, if you just read with me quickly in verse 21, he says, because though they, and he's looking back at human history, and he says, because though they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor do they thankful, but they became futile in their thoughts and their foolish hearts were darkened. And it says, professing to be wise, they became fools and they changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man. And he talks about birds and four-footed animals and creeping things that man has historically worshipped. All we need to, to um, realise that that's a reality is to turn the TV on last night and watch a football match and um, see 100,000 people worshipping their God, right? Um, so again, I, I know there's genuinely people there enjoying themselves, but certainly uh, we are worshipping things lesser than the God of creation. So again, history, and this is what I've said uh, in the last two weeks, history is not the story of primitive human beings worshipping animals and all types of idols to then gradually discover the true and the living God, the God of heaven and earth, and move towards him to become people that worship the one true God. No, the opposite is true. And this is what the Apostle Paul is saying, that man was created in the image of God, we know this, and began his journey in this earth in fellowship with God. But the perversion of that truth that the, of the truth that God began and we began with God and man began not to honour that truth and the downward spiral has begun in human history. And I think, and please let me, forgive me for repeating myself, but I think it's really important for us to recognise that principle that the Apostle Paul is laying down. Because the moment that you and I, the moment that anyone does not honour God as the only majestic, all-powerful, 
one who is infinitely greater than all of us, the moment we, we, we stop honouring him as that God, or as God, as that God, sorry, that moment we begin that downward spiral that Paul is talking about. And we begin to create and we begin to worship lesser gods. We who were created to know God. We who are created to walk in fellowship with God. We who are created to honour God. Again, begin to exchange the worship of the true and living God for lesser things. Right? That's what Paul is saying. So the scripture says, Men have suppressed the truth and the knowledge of God. In that 22nd verse, he said, They have become foolish in their thinking they've grown harder and harder their hearts have become darker and darker and then verse 24 begins to tell us of the sobering reality that we can be as individuals and also as nations give up the knowledge of God altogether and uh when that happens, Paul begins to speak of this most, well, what to me is the most fearful reality. And that is God will allow us to go our own way. That's scary, isn't it? You know, you see, the time will come when God will give those that have continuously rejected him over and over again and continually rejected the knowledge of him, he will give them over to be forsaken to that very thing that they worship instead of God. And it's a tragic reality that has happened throughout history. We see it in nations. We see it in cultures. It has occurred in countless individuals' lives. And it's happening to people right now someone put it this way when they said at a point known only to God this rejection of him inevitably leads to a divine abandonment and so Paul puts it this way he says it three times in this passage that we've been looking at he says that God gave them up and, and when it says God gave them up, that is so much more than God simply saying, okay, you can have your own way. But the abandonment of God turns them over really to the devastating judgment of their own sin to fall into it in greater and greater ways. Or put it this way, you know, God allows men and women, God allows people, God allows nations to go as far as their desires would leave them by lead them by removing the restraining force of his grace that he previously had on them, a grace that was drawing them unto him. And so in one sense, that grace has been drawn away and God, Paul uses this handing over, God is handing them over or casting him off in the direction that they have chosen. And that's a tragic thing. It's a tragic statement. So let's read the passage again in verse 24 down to verse 28. And it says, Therefore God also gave them up to uncleanness in the lust of their hearts to dishonour their bodies amongst themselves, who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshipped and served the Creator rather than the, cre the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. 
And he says, for this reason, God gave them up to vile passions, for even their women exchanged the natural use of what is against nature. Likewise, also the men leaving the natural use of the women burned in their lust for one another, men with men committing that which is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error, which was due. And even as they did not like to, here it is again, retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to mind to do things which are not fitting now we've looked at all that but the clear identifying marks of a society and or and of an individual who god has handed over to their own will according to romans 1 is is identified by some basic well, not principles, but some basic evidences of that society. And number one, we read it, is, is immorality. Number two, idolatry. Number three, homosexuality. And number four, the debased mind by which a society and again or individuals lose the ability to be able to think clearly and reason. Now... We have to be honest and we have to realise that all of the above is evidenced in our society, isn't it? We shouldn't fool ourselves. Now this morning, as I said to you last week, we are coming back to this issue of, of homosexuality. Now, I know, and I guess you know as well, that we are being constantly bombarded with a message that wants to normalise homosexuality in our society. You know, and it's at a point now where most people out there, you know, and it may be even some of you here this morning, but where most people out there are being persuaded that it is a proven sexual orientation that it is normalised in our culture and our society and that it is not indeed sin. It is not sin. But despite the insistence by homosexual advocates and their, and their allies that people are born gay, you know, it's this search for the gay gene, right? That people are born gay. I'm here to tell you the evidence is just not there for that. It just doesn't exist. You know, and I encourage you to seek these things out, you know. Don't just listen to me, but find these things out for yourself. I have read a lot of articles. I've read a lot of articles, and, and not just by Christians. Articles by, by scientists, articles by geneticists, articles by biologists, articles by, by, psych, uh, by, by psychologists. You know, there have been all sorts of studies that have been done in the pursuit of the so-called gay gene, you know. There have been chromosome studies, there have been twin studies, there have been brain studies, there's even been animal studies to be able to make comparisons to humans. There have been, there have been fly studies to try and find a comparison to human activity. You know, there have been the, the pheromone studies, there are human genome studies. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. And as much as they want to insinuate 
great. And please, when you do your reading, I want you to understand this. There is an insinuation that is coming that the existence of the homosexual genetics do exist. The insinuation is always there, but the evidence is not. And you can read it in the way that these studies are worded. And it's almost as if there is a hope for it. We're almost there. We've almost found it. We're on the verge of understanding it. But the evidence is just not there. You know, the closest that I've read is um, a study on, cu on cultural comparisons. And this study on cultural comparisons, they were looking at different cultures around the world and they found that in different cultures where homosexual activity was taking place, what they discovered was that there was a, there was a, a consistency of social abandonment. And that is abandonment in the relationships, and there was separation between between young between you know young males and older males, and things like that. And, and but that's not a biological similar biological evidence, is it? You know, and and by the way, that is what a lot of people have been saying for a long time. There's something missing in the development of people, in the relationships that they should have. And that's not the be-all and end of it all, you know. I mean, in the early days, people used to say, you know, the, that, that the evidence is simply this, and I don't know that it can be stated, and that is that simply it is, you know, people be, uh, choose homosexual lifestyle because, because they did not have the appropriate male role models in their life, and maybe there was a lack of male role model and over an overemphasis of the, of the female influence within a male's life. Now, they used to say that categorically. Now, am I making any sense? But I don't know that that can be proven just as, the, just as the homosexual gene cannot be proven. I'm rambling, aren't I? But one other study I did know, I did notice that stood out to me, and was that a study that is proving that or revealing that there is a great fluidity within the homosexual uh, world. And that is that people are moving into and out of homosexuality from the homosexual, the heterosexual life more prevalently than those that are seeking the gene or the gay gene really want to admit. So there's a lot of research being done, is what my ramblings is kind of coming to. A lot of research is being done, but at the end of the day, no, there is no proof. But the message is consistent, isn't it? So you've been told that it is there, aren't you? Over and over again, despite the message, they want to normalise it within our society. So the question is, what do, what do I say to this as a Christian, as a believer in, in the inerrancy of God's word? In the design, the creative design of God. What do I say to this message? Well, the very first thing we have to understand is that we can't buy into that message. Because you start to buy into that message, you're going to end up buying into a lot of less desirable messages that hopefully I'll hit on in a little while. I don't know. We'll see how we go for time. But we need to understand this. We cannot truly love those who identify as homosexuals without believing and being honest with them that such behavior is sin. We cannot truly love them without being honest because it is sin and like all sin that every single one of us 
have in our lives, all sin separates us from God, doesn't it? Remember, here's Paul in this passage. He opens up this passage with this bold declaration by saying, he is not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Back in verse 16, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the power of God unto salvation. So you and I as believers, we must unashamedly, unashamedly proclaim the gospel. It is the gospel, it is the good news of God's salvation from sin through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. The reality is, again, that all of us have sinned. All of us have fallen short of the glory of God. All of us need to be forgiven. All of us have to find ourselves at the foot of the cross and cry out to our Saviour, Lord, forgive me of my sin. Make me your child. All of us need that there's mercy and there is forgiveness to be found through Christ Jesus we got to be honest about this subject so for us to tiptoe around pretending that homosexuality is homosexuality is not sin is not loving at all it's not loving at all now, having said that, at the same time, we must realize that they need to experience the love of Christ through Christ's people just like you and I did. Isn't that right? Remember what Jesus said? We loved him because we worked it out. No, no, no. We loved him. Why? Because he loved us first. 1 John chapter 4, verse 19. See, we can accept the person without approving of their choice to be in a same-sex relationship. And we should accept the person. Love them. Deepen your relationships with them. But hold firm to the convictions of Christ. It has been well said, never give up on the person, but at the same time, never give up on Scripture. So we are to hold true to what Scripture says, not only about sexuality, but just as importantly about loving others Amen. as Christ has loved us. And I think we also need to realise that we are not called to fix people, you know. We also need to realise that we are not given these evangelical missions to change people. Because it seems that sometimes we, you know, we, we, we can bundle up all this different sin here, but this homosex, sin of homosexuality, we put on a special spot, you know, and we view them differently, and we have this special mission and it affects the way we relate to them, right? Have you ever sensed that? When you've, when you've been around someone says, hey, I'm gay and proud to be, you know? What we've got to realise, we're not the ones that have called to fix anyone. What we are called to do is to point them somewhere. Where do we point them? We point them towards Jesus, right? We love them. We befriend them. We journey with them, never compromising, always loving, knowing it's God who changes lives. And people realize he's better at it than you and I. 
In fact, he is, he is excellent at it, right? Because he changed my life. He changed your life. That's what he does. It's not up to us, but it's up to us to point to Christ. So love them, care for them, accept them, certainly do not accept what they do. Look, I remember not long ago, and I might have shared this with you before, there was a, a person at work who, who came to me every Monday morning and told me that uh, Jesus loved them. They were homosexual and they were openly proud of it, that Jesus loved them and that Jesus uh, was speaking to them and affirming their lifestyle. In fact, they were at a particular fellowship that's not important which one, but they were going to this fellowship week in and a week out, month in, in fact, year in and year out, and were never challenged by the reality of their sexuality being opposed to what the scripture says. And so they would come into me, because I'm the chaplain where I work, and they would come into me every morning and quite innocently be telling them what God had spoken to them through the preaching of the word that day, and that God was constantly affirming, I say again, their relationship. And I listened for a while, because you know, because I like this person. And I listened for a while, and I, and, and, but it got to a point where I finally, you know, it was the conviction of God upon my heart. And when I said with this, Chris, you can't remain silent here. You know, you can't allow this person to think that I am happy with their chosen lifestyle. And finally, it got to a point where I said to them, look, hey, look, I, I really care about you. But you need to understand what the scripture says about your chosen lifestyle. I said, God does not approve, you know. And I shared these things. And he's like, that's my responsibility. That's your responsibility to allow God to lead you into those opportunities to share these truths in love, in compassion, with acceptance, not rejecting the person. And then it's really up to God, isn't it? It's really up to God. You know, and sometimes what will take place is what happened there. That person, I shared those things and it just went straight across that person's head. You know what? Next Monday they were back in my office (laughs) saying exactly the same thing. Other times people are going to get angry at you. Other times people are going to call you a homophobic bigot. You know? But there will be times when the grace of God and the Spirit of God wooing that person's heart through the loving acceptance of a child of God, is, is going to break through. There's evidence of it. You know, Apostle Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 when he highlights you know, a list of sins, including homosexuality, and he looks and he says to them, of whom some of you were, past tense, because the grace of God had reached them and touched them and changed their lives. God is the one who changes lives. But here's the thing. Here's the thing. Here is the thing. If we are going to make this journey with people, then we are going to be confronted by some very real, hard questions. And questions that are being... Is the word touted? What does that mean? Did I make that word up? Put forth, thank you, yeah, that's much better, has been put forth, touted, um, at an ever-increasing rate in a world that has normalised that reality. 
And it's being held up as solid evidence for. And so you and I as Christians, we need to be able to know what do I say when these things are brought to us. So this morning, I'm looking at the clock. I'm only going to give you two of those commonly held forth uh, challenges to the Christian position. And next week, we'll come back and we'll do another couple. Um, Love is love. Is love is love. You know that one, right? I'll save that one for next week. Why do you pick and choose? You know, that'll take us into the Old Testament. Why do you pick these verses and... No. So they're, they're big questions. So, but I want to deal with, with a couple of others this morning. So what do you say? What do you say when someone comes to you and they say, Jesus never condemned homosexuality. Have you had that said to you? You know, which is a commonly held defence, you know, against the scriptural condemnation of homosexuality. It goes a bit like this. It goes a bit like this. You know, you want me to trust Jesus. You know, you're pointing to Jesus. You want me to trust Jesus. You know, but Jesus doesn't nowhere calls my lifestyle sin. You 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 keep talking about someone called Moses. You keep talking about a law and you keep talking about verses like Leviticus that Moses spoke about. You keep talking about someone called Paul who who seemed to don't like homosexuality. Not Jesus. But not Jesus. Jesus would be loving. Jesus would be affirming of my lifestyle. Jesus would be affirming of homosexuality. No, he's not bigoted. He's not intolerant. He's not homophobic like this Moses and this, this Paul that you talk about. And the argument goes along that way. What do you say? What do you say as a Christian to that? Well, actually, the answer is Jesus does. You know, you know. He spoke about it. He spoke about it in by affirming the divine purpose of marriage. You know, in Mark, Matthew's gospel and in Mark's gospel, Jesus spoke about it. Jesus said this, it was responding to the Pharisees. He says, have you not read that he who made, referring to God, made at the very beginning, made them male and female? And he said, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh so that they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined, let no man Separate, let no man put asunder, as the old King James. Again, what Jesus is doing is affirming marriage as a lifelong union. You don't have a problem with that, do you? You know, he is affirming marriage as a lifelong union between one man and one woman. That's where people begin to waver. And let me say something. These, these defences that I'm offering to you this morning, you know, uh, I, I believe are important because it's easy for the Christian to lower their standard and not f- stand against the tide of society. Because you say the things that we're talking about today anywhere out there now. 
And you're very much alone, aren't you? You're very, very much alone. And I think a lot of Christians are simply just bowing so they don't have to be confronted by this really difficult situation that's happening in their world, within their families, all around them, all the time. So it's important that we understand these things. It's important that we hold fast to the truth that is declared to us. And so here what Jesus was doing, I'll say it again, was affirming as a lifelong union between man and woman, this is what marriage is, that it is a divinely ordained institution, that it was originator, or the originator of marriage is the creator himself, and particularly to sexuality by quoting there when he says, and the two shall become one flesh. And what he was saying is that sexuality is God-ordained between, again, it's obvious, between one man and one woman. It is God's design. And, and, and he is saying that homosexuality is obviously against that design. And it doesn't matter today that our government has decided to ratify a design that's not given to us in God's word, that, that was not originally a part of the creation. It doesn't matter that our government has decided to, by a popular vote, decided to redefine marriage it doesn't matter what matters is and the only one that has the right to define marriage is God himself right so Jesus makes it very clear that homosexuality is against the very design the very purpose of design or the created purpose that God brought into existence and the very first command that God gave to man was what Go forth and multiply, fill the earth. And what homosexuality does defies the original command, the first command. And we've got we've to recognise these things. Another point to this question that Jesus, that people say that Jesus did not refer to homosexuality directly is the point that Jesus does refer to sexual immorality. In um, Matthew's Gospel, chapter 15 and verse 19, he talks about how the things that proceed out of the heart are the things that defile a man. And he gives us this list, and in that list, of course, certainly is homosexuality. And he says the things that defile a man, homosexuality defiles a man, the word is unclean, defiled. It's a very Levitical term, unclean, isn't it, you know? But what unclean is, it's identifying something that is excluded from the worshipping community, right? It's the same image that is used in the book of Revelation. You can see it in verse 21, where, where John, through the revelation of God, is describing the eternal kingdom. And again, it is pictured of the, the, the unclean, the defiled, of those things that are outside of the eternal kingdom of God. And so when Jesus says sexual immorality, he's identifying, amongst other things, a great list of things that if they are not repented of and forgiven through the blood of Jesus Christ, those things will not be a part of God's eternal family. So what is sexual immorality? The word that is used by Jesus is pornea. 
And the basic understanding of that word, simply this, is unlawful sexual intercourse. Unlawful sexual intercourse. And the Bible gives us a great list of these things. Do you want to know what they are? Well, this is what is unlawful according to the scripture. A man is not to have sex with his neighbour's wife. We don't argue with that, right? A man is not to have sex with an animal. The Bible says that, makes it clear. The Bible says a man is not to have sex with his mother-in-law. The Bible makes that clear. The Bible says a man is not to have sex with his daughter-in-law. The Bible makes that clear. The Bible says a man is not to have sex with his sister. The Bible makes that clear. The Bible says a man is not to have sex with a man. All of these things a sexual immorality. So Jesus does speak very clearly about homosexuality, again, amongst a whole lot of other things that defile a person. And I'll say it again, those things unforgiven places them outside of the eternal kingdom of God. It's true, Jesus did not use the word homosexuality. It was, it's not recorded in Scripture. But please, if that becomes a person's defense, understand this. There are a lot of things he didn't use by name. There are a lot of things that he didn't directly say. He never, ever spoke against incest. He never, ever spoke against bestiality. He never, ever spoke against pedophilia. He never, ever spoke against rape using those direct terms. But he did identify them all as sinful and things that separate people from God by using the term sexual immorality. But let me say it again. Should a person's argument that Jesus never actually used the words homosexuality while he walked on this earth... Should that be an issue for a person or a, or a justifying position? Should it be? No, it shouldn't. Why? Because, hey, understand this, Jesus didn't stop speaking to us simply when he left this earth. Jesus died upon the cross for man's sins. Jesus was laid in a tomb. Three days later, Jesus rose from the dead He appeared to countless witnesses and then on a particular day he stood upon the Mount of Olives with the disciples gathered around him and he ascended into heaven. Jesus didn't stop speaking when he ascended into heaven. We need to understand that. So yeah, while Jesus stood upon this earth, he never said that word. But you know what? Do you remember the last night when he was with his disciples in that upper room? And he said many things to the disciples that night. But one of the important things he said to them, let me read it to you, is from John chapter 16 and verse, he starts in verse 12. He says this, I still have many things to say to you. This is the night of his arrest. The evening before his crucifixion. He says, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. However, when he, that is the spirit of truth, the Holy Spirit, 
has come, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak of his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will tell you the things to come. He will glorify me, for he will take of what is mine and declare it to you. All things that the Father has are mine. Therefore I said that he will take of mine, and he, that is the Holy Spirit, will declare these things to you. Did you hear that? Do you hear what it's saying? Jesus said that the word that the Holy Spirit would speak to the New Testament church through his disciples would be his own words. That's why we get to 2 Timothy 3.16 and it tells us that all scripture is given by the inspiration of God and it is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, instruction and in righteousness. Again, that's why we come across the Apostle Peter when Peter would say in 2 Peter chapter 1 that prophecy never came by the will of men, but how? But holy men spoke as if they were moved, spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. And when Peter says that, he's using the sense of them being carried along, just like a boat is carried along by the wind through its sails. And what he's saying is the writers of the Old Testament were carried along. Yes, they were the human agencies, but they were carried along by the Holy Spirit in the direction to bring forth the word of God as they append the New Testament epistles to us. And so the book of Acts... The epistles of Paul and Peter and John and James and Jude, the book of Hebrews, the book of Revelation, are all God-breathed, again, through those human agencies. Every word came from God. And who is God? God exists eternally as the Father, Son and the Holy Spirit, doesn't he? What did Jesus say? I'll read it again. He says, all things that the Father, God, has a mind, Jesus the Son. Therefore, I said that he, the Holy Spirit, would take mine and declare it unto you. You see the entire Godhead involved there, don't you? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit bringing forth what Jesus wanted to say to his church. So again, Jesus did speak, didn't he? He decidedly spoke, identifying homosexuality as sin. Bottom line, you cannot separate anything, anything at all, that is written in your Bible from Jesus Christ. It's all. See, we tend to think it's only those words written in, le- in red ink, don't we? You know, but it's not. It's every single word is God-breathed. But again, if you as a Christian, and I've got to say this, are ignoring all this that says Jesus didn't actually speak of homosexuality when he walked upon this earth, and you are now finding yourself saying, oh, so I'm okay with it, then ultimately you have to deal with those other things that I said earlier that Jesus did not speak about. Because again, he did not speak about incest. He did not speak about bestiality. He did not speak about pedophilia. He did not speak about rape. And so do you want to join people marching in the streets? Trying to normalise any of those things? Based upon your defence that Jesus, you as a Christian, that Jesus didn't speak about it? No, that's foolishness. That's a darkened heart. It's a darkened mind. 
It's ignoring the glory of the only begotten Son of God. That's what it is, who has spoken to you and I. Most certainly, all of those things are condemned by Scripture. How are we going for time? I got one done, didn't I? Can you, can you hang with me for the second? I'll try and be brief. So the second argument that you're going to come against um, in our society is uh, regarding the sinfulness of, hum- of homosexuality is that simply that we Christians and the people we trust in to translate our Bibles have got it wrong. You know, they say, so, Jesus, so Paul actually talks about uh, homosexuality in Romans 1.27, uh, 1 Corinthians 6.9 and 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 10 directly. And what they say it is that the word that is used there to identify homosexuality has been mistranslated. And what they are saying is that the Greek word for homosexuality used there does not refer to a mutual commitment to same-sex relationships between two loving men. They say it's not referring to that at all, but rather it is referring to an abusive sexual relationship where men, use, men would use boys for sex. And that's an unpleasant statement, isn't it? It is for us, but you know what? It was a very common thing in the first century Greco-Roman world. A very common thing where men would use boys for sex. So when someone comes along to you and says, hey, you know what? You shouldn't have to struggle against this, you know? Because really, what Paul was talking about there was not what you think it is. And so again, Christians not wanting to stand in the firing line, not wanting to lovingly, compassionately stand with these people and direct them towards Jesus Christ. No, so many Christians will go, wow, that's great. That's really great because I hate that too. I hate the idea of of pedophilia. I hate the idea of of children being used sexually like that. And and, and it's easy to find yourself going, "Uh uh-huh, I know now why Paul was saying the things that he was saying. It's a mistranslation. I hear people, you know what my job is? My job is, is is to tell you what the Word of God says. And I'm here to tell you, it's not a mistranslation at all. That's a lie. It's a lie. Out and out, it's a lie. The word that God, Paul uses, inspired by the Holy Spirit, is not a mistranslation. The word that Paul uses is the Greek word arsenokoites. Can you say that with me? Arsenokoites, right? It's a compound word made up of two basic Greek words. Asen, which is male, koite, which means bed. The Latin word coitus that we will be familiar with comes from that word koite. And coitus, for you and I, we understand is a biological term that is used to describe sexual intercourse, isn't it? So the most basic translation of the word that the Apostle Paul uses is male bedding. That's what it means. 
And to say that this word that he used is to be singularly intended for a man-boy relationship, that is the mistranslation. The word is speaking about homosexuality, male bedding, homosexuality in general. If Paul wanted to, by the way, if he wanted to refer to the man-boy relationship, then there, was, then there was a clear Greek word that he could have used that every person from the first century would absolutely understood what he was talking about if he wanted to use, and, that's, and the word, I'm not good at saying these words, but the word simply is, is paterista. And again, another compound word, paid, being boy, and estress, being lover, Simply, boy, lover. That's what Paul could have used if he wanted to support what the critics of our position of what the Bible actually says. And the other problem is, when they make this statement, they forget that Paul has already said that he's referring not only to man with man, but what else did he say? He referred to woman with woman in that passage. And they so it's pretty clear, isn't it? Uh, I'm sorry the Greek study was terrible. I encourage you to seek these things out. Paul clearly said that it is women burning with women and men burning in their lust for other men to do indecent acts. Okay. I'm out of time. What do we say? What do we say when we are challenged by this normalisation of homosexuality? Come back next week if you're up for some more. And we will look at the love is love is love is love. All that matters is love. How dare you, how dare you say that their love one for another is wrong? Let's answer that. And the other one is... Why do you Christians pick and choose? You know, that, that has been used to great effect to disarm and to quieten the Christians. Because they go back to the Old Testament, Leviticus, and they say, hey, you want to talk about homosexuality all the time, but what about these other things? Let's have a look at that next week. Can I say, in, in wrapping up, this is not about winning arguments. And I've already said it, but this is not about winning arguments, but rather it's about leading people to Christ. But we have to have something to say. Because when these things are brought before Christians and we just stand there like dumb with nothing to say, how can we be effective in winning people to Christ? Are you willing to engage in the discussion? That's the other thing. You know, because I don't know about you, but we come, I come across it all the time. All the time. So are we willing to engage in the conversation, but to do it lovingly? You know, again, not just to win an argument. If that's our motivation, then we will never do anything, anything for these people. Amen? I had a quote I was going to read. I'd, where, did it, where did I put it? Uh, 
doesn't matter. I've lost it. If you've got any questions, I may not have the answers, but if you've got any questions, please, um, let's have a chat about these things. Um, let's pray. Father in heaven.